Yeah, so that ministry is important to me and my, my family. We've been doing that all these years um, and uh, have many joys and stories to tell about ministry in various places. Along with that, though, has been a lot of pastoring, and currently I'm pastoring uh, one of five pastors in Kansas City, Missouri, in a church uh, uh, I was, I was uh, allowed to help start in the beginning. I mean, a, a fellow I mentored and I began this, began this church when the right time came. And um, that's also been a tremendous joy, and they're very supportive of the work we do in, the, in our ministry as well. So God is good, isn't he, to give us the opportunity to, to teach and to learn and to grow as Christians. Now, today we want to talk all day long. This is the second four-message thing that I'm doing here this week. They're about to kill me. You know. In other words, this is the last week I'll be of my ministry probably. <laughs> But, um, yeah, we're, we're going to take four sessions and talk about um, the, the life of trust. Uh, this is uh, how, how faith is applied in our lives as believers. Uh, I'm going to begin today and talk to you about the ground, actually the ground of our faith, not from God's standpoint, but really from our standpoint as believers. Where do we start out that prepares us for a lifelong uh, experience of faith with the Lord. And then the second message that we'll have, that will be in Luke, and then the second message will also be in Luke, and we'll talk about, I think, probably Jesus uh, Christ's strongest statements about faith in Luke chapter 12. We'll deal with a a powerful passage of Jesus and... and, uh, and look at how faith is, how Jesus expects faith to work out in our experience in life as believers. After lunch, uh, for those of you who can stay awake, we'll, we'll, we're, I'm going to do a biographical sketch of George Mueller. George Mueller has greatly impacted my life 55 years ago, began 55 years ago. Uh, it's shaped all of my experience for decades. And so I want to relate those things to you the best I can, give you an overview of a life of a man who lived by faith in the Lord. And then the final message will also be in Luke, and we'll extend further what Jesus began to say in Luke chapter 12 with something very practical and helpful for us that we can leave with concerning faith in Christ. So I hope you can stay through all of this and and, um, be alert as possible uh, and just pray that I'll still be, you know, not fall asleep up here. I, I actually, um, I heard uh, uh, one man tell me about, uh, tell us how, one day how he had actually, Jay Adams actually, he, tell, he mentioned how he had fallen asleep in the pulpit. So I thought, I don't want to do that when I get uh, into my dotage. But uh, he actually leaned over in his pastoral prayer and just fell dead asleep right there in, in, the, in the pulpit. So I'm not going to do that, I promise. And my wife's down here, so a lot of things don't happen because she's here, you know. All right. Well, let's first of all then just turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 14 as we talk about the beginning place of faith. I think this is a necessary message when we talk about faith in our experience as believers, actually. So we'll look at Luke chapter 14. And if you don't mind, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer again here. So let's bow our heads and talk to the Lord for a moment. Father, thank you for your gracious love and kind guidance and care for us all these years and the things that you have built into our lives. And uh, we still find ourselves um, painfully inadequate and 
very much aware of the need to trust you. And so help us today to renew our, our, our joy and our relationship with you and the excitement and anticipation about what you can do with our lives, uh, Lord, and help us to just to gain ground in the life of trust in you, which is most honoring and most precious and sweet and and attractive, Lord. Uh, help us to be people who really know how to trust you. So guide me in the things that I say, Lord, for your sake. You be honored. Would you be honored in all of these sessions and in our discussions together. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll go to Luke chapter 14, and we will begin in verse 25 in just a a moment. Uh, When we talk about faith from the perspective of the uh, believer, uh, the person who's coming to Christ, and the way they're starting out uh, in the beginning, there are really two ways to think about faith, and I, I think this is critical for us to think about, and perhaps you've noticed this, surely you have noticed this in the scripture, because some of what we read about faith speaks of an absolute uh, necessary dependence upon the substitutionary work of Christ. He did for us things that we could not do for ourselves. He, he gave us that life, uh, uh, you know, and we we gave up on what we were doing, and we entrusted him t- entirely. And that is uh, a, a, a very clear way that we see faith developed in the Scripture, especially in, in, in Paul, I think, in some ways. We see that very articulated theologically in Paul in a beautiful way, and we believe that with all of our heart. There's another thing that might trouble you, though, sometimes. You come along and you see that there are several places in the Bible where we are challenged to be disciples of Christ and to be obedient to Christ. And, and, um, and sometimes it can confuse us. How do, we, how do we bring that into this life of faith of just absolute surrender and trust in Christ to do something that we couldn't do for ourselves? We're going to see that in this passage here in a way. This is a challenge. This is a passage where Jesus is laying out terms of discipleship. The word faith is not mentioned in it. But let me explain how faith shows up in a passage like this, even though it's not mentioned, okay? Um, if I were to say to you, if you were to say to me, let's say, um, I believe in, boy, I hesitate to mention a presidential candidate either side. I'm in trouble, maybe. Uh, let's, let's go back a ways. Let's, let's just use an iconic figure. Let's, let's say Karl Marx, okay? I believe in Karl Marx, okay? If you say, I believe in Karl Marx. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Um, and what is characteristic of that word in the English language is also characteristic of it in the Greek language. It has the same kind of, uh, there's the same kind of ideas floating around it, okay? I believe in Karl Marx. Somebody tells you, I believe in Karl Marx. Well, I think what you mean is not that you really, maybe you don't know very much about Karl Marx. Maybe you don't even know he wrote Das Kapital and... Communist Manifesto. I read that last year, by the way. Interesting book. I don't believe it now any more than I thought I believed it before. Uh, but, you know, maybe you don't know much about him. But um, if you, as far as his, like, personal history, but you know him as a philosophy, correct? If I say Karl Marx, you think Marxism, 
And there's a whole philosophy there. So if you say, I believe in Karl Marx, you're probably saying, I'm espousing the whole philosophy of Karl Marx. I, 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 the, the life he wants us to live, the communal life that we are supposed to uh, share, the centralization of government, the future uh, utopian vil, uh, 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 you know, a vision he has for people. I'm into that, you know, the person would say. I'm, I'm into that. Now, if a person said, I'm a Marxist, but he didn't really walk as a Marxist and talk as a Marxist, you would say, well, you don't really believe in Karl Marx. Wouldn't you say that? You would say something like, you're a student of Karl Marx, but obviously not a real believer in Karl Marx. So do you see something in that uh, that helps us with the idea of, of faith? What part, part of what faith is, is this, this idea of um, an absolute uh, sort of surrender to the, the, the life that he is laying out before us and a commitment to that life. Uh, it's buying in, I'd say, that's, maybe that's a term. Buying in fully to what Christ has laid out so that, so that the Bible would say, particularly you'd see this in John, for instance, you, you, you find that he over and over really equates faith with something like believing my words, right? <laughs> believing what I'm teaching you, right? You're, you're, you're espousing those things. You probably noticed that as you looked at the word faith mentioned almost a hundred times in the book of John. Um, so the person who believes in Christ just, I would say, buys in, goes fully into the philosophy that, that Christ is laying out for us, the future vision of life, the, everything that he says, they buy into the, the words that he has, and certainly they buy into the fact that Christ alone does what is necessary for your salvation, Okay. Are you with me right there? I don't think I've said anything heretical, but it, it helps us to understand this, that, that uh, faith is, is uh, just a little, it's a little bit more than the idea of just saying it's all him and, and, and he does everything we need. That's true, but there has to, there's a buy-in, right? There's something about uh, the heart surrendering and espousing and loving and appreciating and following Christ. Well, Christ is going to talk like that in this, in this passage, and he's going to give us terms, terms for discipleship. A person might look at that and say, well, discipleship, that sounds like an effort I'm making. Well, no. Uh, it is that full surrender of everything to Christ, and we have to start there if we're going to be people of faith, right? Is everybody with me? Okay, well, we'll see how this develops. Now, let's look at it in in uh, chapter uh, 14 and verse 25. And I think I want to say one thing beforehand. Let me give you one statement, and then we'll begin, we'll begin with the story that's being developed here and what Jesus says. Um, here's a statement I want to make. There are many who profess faith in Christ whose confidence lies in the presumption that Jesus did not mean what he says about the cost of discipleship. Okay, let, me, let me say that again. It's a pretty complex sentence. There are many who profess faith in Christ whose confidence lies in the presumption that Jesus did not mean what he says about the cost of discipleship. But he does. He does. He means what he says. So when we find Jesus 
expressing the, the, the terms of discipleship for our entrance into a relationship with him, uh, he really does mean what he says. And once this is understood, then we are prepared for a whole life of trust as believers in Christ. Okay? He begins with this, verse 25. The narrator says, Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, just sort of picture, Jesus had been speaking to, uh, he had been already discussing lots of things and people were attracted to the things that he was saying. So just picture a large group of people actually walking along with Jesus and Jesus stopping and then turning around to them and saying something to them about discipleship. The, the following, the interest people have in Christ is not the same as being a Christian, right? So a great deal of interest was, there was a great deal of interest generated by Jesus' words. And uh, you know how Jesus typically did it. He, the crowd would swell and then he would, then he would teach and preach the ideas of discipleship, right? And the crowd would narrow down again. Right? This is typical of Christ, like an accordion almost. The crowd would get bigger, and they would be interested in him, and then he would lay down what his expectations were. That's happening in this passage, so think of that. So there are a lot of people out here who follow Christ in a sense. They're interested in Christ on that level, but they have not dealt with the terms of discipleship. Here's what Jesus says is the first term. Listen, the first term. If anyone comes to me, he said, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he, what does it say? He cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Let me read it again. It, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Wow, what a statement to contemplate, right? What in the world does he mean here? Does he mean, men, that you need to go home uh, today and just hug your wife and say, Honey, I hate you. You know, that's I really hate you. Um, no, because it's interesting. In the scripture, we find that the Bible, uh, that, that the Lord is telling us to love our wives. So this seems conflictive and difficult, doesn't it? Why, why does he say we must hate our wives and our children and even our own life when he tells us actually in other places to love our wives and our children, our families? And, and in, in, some way, in some ways he says some things about loving our own lives in some ways, right? So what are we to think of this, this idea? Well, I think right here what he means is there can be no contesting love. There can be no competitive love with the love of Jesus Christ. His love, our love for him, consumes everything. It is the one thing we need to do. And our love for our wife, for instance, is, is either a means of loving him, or it's contesting our love for him. It's competing with our love for him. 
So what we are to hate uh, is this kind of love that competes with Jesus Christ. Everything in your life, if you come to Christ, everything when we begin this walk and life of trust in Jesus, everything must be his. We must, we must love him supremely, and his love trumps everything else that there is. And you, you, should, uh, you and I really should not even hang a picture on the wall unless it's a means of loving him, right? Everything we do has to be a means of loving Christ, all right? I used to teach something that is just dead wrong, and, and probably you've heard this, you see it in books here and there, where there'll be the prioritizing of different major things in your life. So someone would say, well, really, you ought to prioritize God first, and then you ought to put your family second, and then you ought to put, let's say if you're in the ministry, you ought to put your ministry next, and then there's a whole, there's a list of maybe four or five things that you ought to do. What a foolish thing to say, right? What are you supposed to do? Give 43% to Jesus and then 32% to, you know, your family? How do you do that? You don't do, you can't do that. It's impossible to do. The only thing we can do is absolutely love Christ and only love what he allows us to love, right? We love as a way of loving Christ. Does that make sense? All right. That's the, that's the first dramatic term that he, he gives us in this passage. The second one has an illustration with it. Let me read it. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Wow, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? He says that we must carry our own cross. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he really means here that he's, he's speaking here of the, the, this tremendous cost of following Jesus Christ in the body. Okay, in other words, the person who picks up the cross, picks up a cross, is actually bearing the instrument of his, his suffering and death, right? He's, he's carrying the very thing that is going to uh, cause him much pain and even death. So we must be willing to follow Jesus Christ when we begin this walk with Jesus, which will result in a life of trust in him. We, we must begin by saying whatever pain and suffering and, you know, just difficulty and, uh, you know, conflict we have to face and insults we must face, whatever it is, even to the point of death, that's we have to be willing to do that. We take up our instrument of death and we follow him, whatever might come our way. Does that communicate? That's a, that's a very powerful thing, isn't it? So when we're talking to somebody about being uh, a follower of Christ, we, we're laying out these kinds of terms, man. It is a big deal, isn't it, to become a Christian? You really change. Things are very deeply changing in your whole mind and psyche and view of life by coming to Jesus Christ. Everything's changing. 
And you've got to say, your body is his. Your body is his. If it's tiredness, if it's work that's too hard to, to follow him and obedience to him, if it's, if it's conflict that being obedient to him causes even to your body, your sleep, your, you know, you, you've got to be willing to pay that even to the point, actually, of dying for Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ demands. You can't be his disciple unless you do that. Is that the way you heard things in the beginning? I don't think a lot of people have heard this, this in the beginning, right? And if it, comes, if it comes as a surprise, then we haven't really taught the whole truth about what it means, uh, you know, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And... Uh, you probably remember the story of the great missionary John Patton and when he was going to the New Hebrides uh, Islands where there were cannibals. People were saying to him, you can't go there because they'll eat you. You know, you'll die there. And he said, famously, I died already. So this is the way we, we come to Christ with the anticipation that it will cost us. And our, our bodies are, are, are laid down sacrificially to, to Christ and, and, and will follow him even when the pain comes. And we, we, if, if you're like me, you have to renew that understanding from time to time, right? You have to think about that again when you start complaining about the difficulties of being obedient. But that's the term he lays down. And he means it. Else people will look at you and they'll say, well, you know, you began to build. You need to count this cost. You see, you, you began to build, but you weren't able to finish. Right? So uh, he's, he, he warns us that we need to count the cost of this. So not, this is not a shallow decision. This is something you need to think through pretty deeply here, very deeply. You need to decide if you're going to be this way. You know, I, I don't... I don't doubt that even in a group like this, there could be somebody say, you know, I don't know that I've ever dealt with those terms of, of Christ. You know, I don't know if I've really thought through the fact that my body is his and pain and suffering may come with this peculiar, peculiarity that I become to the world. And I, I've never felt more, uh, brothers and sisters, that, that we're going to, more like we're, like we're going to experience suffering than I have now in my, my history in the ministry, at least. I, I do see, don't you? You can feel it in the air. You know things are already starting to happen in ways that we may well experience some, and our children may well experience suffering that we have not known before. may well happen to us. So then there is a third one. Now, the third um, term of discipleship begins with an illustration, and then he gives us the term. So he, can, he, he makes his illustration and then draws us into the last term of discipleship. Here's what he says. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and he asks for terms of peace. So then, so this illustration is leading to his conclusion, right? So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. 
wow, there's another amazing thing that God is asking from, from you and from me to begin this life of trust in him. It's foundational, isn't it, to everything that we're doing for us to start here. Now, the, the term, in terms of peace, you're familiar with that, I suppose. If you read in the Old Testament, you realize that when they were coming into the land, the Lord, the, the Lord actually uh, told them to, when they were coming in to fight a battle into the, into the land of Canaan, they were to go and send a delegation and offer to them terms of peace. Right? Now it's found in it's found in a couple of long passages. I won't I won't have us turn to that right now, but it's quite fascinating that he's using a term from the Old Testament about conquering the land of Canaan. The terms of peace were these: uh, we will spare your life, but everything you have, including yourself, is ours. You become our slaves. And everything you've got, we may let you use it, but if we want it, it's ours in exchange for your life. That's terms of peace, okay? So it's fitting, isn't it, for the Lord to present this where two kings are in battle, one vastly stronger than the other. That's like God, and this is like you, right? You know you're going to lose, right? To ask for terms of peace, meaning you surrender everything to him, uh, even you become a slave to him, and all your possessions become his. So then, he says, no one can be my disciple unless he gives up all of his possessions. In our talk about faith, um, through this morning, we're going to, uh, and, and this afternoon, we're going to look particularly about how our life of trust works out in this materialistic world. And we're going to be talking about critical issues of money and possessions and these sorts of things as a, as a, as a way to think about and practice our faith before the Lord. Christ is very demanding about those things, very strong and very beautiful in the way he does and inviting in the way he presents himself presents this to us in the scripture, but this is right at the heart of it. How can we, if we are going to live a life of trust in God for all that we need in our lives in this materialistic world, if we're going to be different than everybody else in the way that we handle money and possessions, which God calls us to distinct, I mean, strongly calls us to, then we have to start right here, don't we? With this term of discipleship, we must give up all our possessions to the Lord. So again, we know that uh, we know that He lets us use a lot of things. But man, do you really? Have, maybe you've had the experience Pam and I have had of just going through the house and just looking at everything we've got and thinking, "This belongs to the Lord. That belongs to the Lord." This belongs to the Lord. And I found, what I found is, through my history, and you probably could testify to the same, he comes calling for some of his things every once in a while. Right? And he messes with my bank account. You know, he wants to use that stuff. And, and, uh, but if I've settled the issue that 
everything is his, and we've got terms of peace going here between us. My life is spirit. I'm given life because uh, I've become his slave and, and uh, everything is his. Well, then, uh, what can I say about that, right? I've, I've, already, I've already made this decision. This preempts any decision, other decision I might have to make about money. I've already made the decision. How, mu- how much more is it to say, uh, okay, um, just in a ridiculous, what seems ridiculous to the world, give more than you thought you would ever do to somebody who needs help. And well, if the, the, the question is not the doing of it. The, the, you know, the question is making sure it is God's will, right? That's the, that's the question. But once you know that is the will of God to do that, there should not be any. It's a very little step, isn't it, between your beginning with Christ and whatever he asks you to do. And considering all of these terms of discipleship, what if God comes, what if God comes along and says, okay, in your, in your maturity as a Christian, I want you to go and I want you to do some kind of overseas work in some way for a period of time. I want you, how, how much of a question should you have about whether he has the right to do that? None. You have no, you've already settled the affection issue, your family issues, right? They've, they've already been settled. You settled the pain and suffering, difficulty issue. And you've settled the financial issue, right? Everything belongs to him. So what? it's only a matter of finding out if that's the will of God. You get your brothers in the church, and you try to find out whether this is the will of God for you to do. But yes, he might do that. He does that, right? So once we begin with the right foundation, we are prepared then for a very different kind of life. And actually, I have to say, I think a very colorful life, an exciting life to live. Amen. But if we are people who are hanging on, having the rights over our body, having the rights over being close to our family and having everything, you know, we think we want all in a neat package. Sometimes that happens, but sometimes that's not going to happen, you know, if you obey Jesus Christ. And you're just... You, you know, you just don't, you're just padding your life with everything you need and making yourself, th- that comfort is your big issue, right, in your life. Well, I've got news for you. You need to question, actually, whether you know Christ, if you've ever really met the terms of discipleship. Look at, the, look at this. Um, I want you to... Um, I want you to just consider what he says here at the end. This is very interesting. He comes down to the end of this. And having settled the affection issue, the pain and death issue, the money and possessions issue, he says this, and it seems totally disjoint to, to the, what he said before. Therefore, so we know it's part of what he's saying. He's concluding with something. Therefore, salt is good. And I have to tell you, when I read that, when I first began to look at that, I thought, that is the strangest thing to say after all that he said. Salt is good. Well, yes. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't seem apropos at all, does it? But he said, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, uh, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. 
it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What in the world did Jesus say? It's incredible, isn't he? He brings this picture, this image into our mind about salt. Well, again, therefore is an explanation. He's coming to a conclusion, isn't he? Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt becomes taste, I think the reason in my translation that word would be added is because salt, the compound, the simple compound for salt, uh, always makes salt salty. In other words, <laughs> salt is never real salt. The actual compound is uh, sodium chloride, right? That, that simple compound is always salt. It's always what it is. It's always. So this is, he's really talking about an impossibility. So if you, he's talking then about something like this. If you are professing to be salt, but yet you have become tasteless, how can you recover that, you know? Right? Something is, in other words, you're professing something that you are not. You're only good to be thrown out. You're not even good for the manure pile as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. Right? In other words, if you're not me, what he's saying here, I think, to us is we're not, if we have not come in under the terms of discipleship and live in these terms of discipleship as kind of foundational starting place of a life of faith, then you're not what you profess you to be. It doesn't make any difference if you say you are. That doesn't make any difference. There are lots of people in churches who say they're something, right, uh, have some kind of relationship with Christ, who have no relationship with Christ. If you don't, he's, I, he couldn't be clearer about the terms of discipleship, could he? I mean, it's absolutely clear. How many people are in, in your ministries and in your church and in your family and so forth, who profess to know Jesus Christ, how many people have even considered these terms of discipleship? Where are they? So they, they may be professing something that they are not, and if that is true, they're good for nothing. Not even for, this is so, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, uh, it's so difficult to swallow. He says, you're not even good for the manure pile. Now, that's not a very good commendation for a person, is it? Not good for the manure pile. They would add salt to manure and put, and then let it dry and put it in bricks and burn that. That's that's been that's been done a lot through the in, around the world. So that's what he's talking about. They would put that salt into the manure and it it would make it burn hotter. Okay, so the the dried manure. He says you're not even good for the manure pile. I remember one time I was in the library and I was studying and I was in the biography section. There's a very big biography of Lucille Ball. Some of you are old enough to know who she is, was. And big, a, big, uh, a big biography was there. And, uh, but she, 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 was, she despised God. She was, not a, she was not a believer at all and, and really was very actually pretty profane in that way. So, you know, at the end of the day, that long life, we like, we think she's funny. She's, you know, 
But that long life really means nothing for the kingdom of God. It's worthless. It was a worthless life for, for the kingdom of God, the interest of God, the creator of all things, the Lord above everything. It, it, it did nothing for the kingdom of God except become the ugly backdrop so that Christians can shine like diamonds in this world and make a difference. But she did nothing herself. She was good for nothing. Isn't that an awful thing to say? I mean, yeah, obviously God uses even unbelievers for some purposes, right? He used Pharaoh for a purpose, right? He has purposes, but as far as contributing to the kingdom in any positive way, uh, as believers do, she was good for nothing. Not even good for the manure pile. It's a really, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? Right? So, okay, what are we saying here that helps us with what we'll talk about? I want to just end it here and not be too long in these messages each time. But just think carefully. What we're saying is there is a starting place to a life of faith. And the starting place makes a dramatic difference. Right? And the movement from that starting place into other steps and that God would lead us in is really decided ahead of time, right? In a, in a way, the major problem has been decided when we start out with and become a true disciple of Christ. All right? So let's ponder that, and then when we come together we're go- again in a few minutes, we're going to talk about Jesus' I think most famous words about the life of trust that will, I think, in some ways build on this right here that we've just said. So let's again just close our eyes for a minute. Why don't you just be quiet for a moment and let me read these terms of discipleship for you. And why don't you think about them again? All right. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross, his instrument of destruction, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. None of you, he says, can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So are you a disciple of Christ? That's a good place to start. Let me go back to that phrase, that sentence I started out with. There are many who profess faith in Christ whose confidence lies in the presumption that Jesus did not mean what he says about the cost of discipleship. Thank you, Lord. Help us to think deeply about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening really well. I appreciate that. Brother?